Victorian science redefined what was possible, what was visible, and what was quantifiable. Understandably, people worried about it. Join us for an exploration of science and scientists in Victorian fiction. I'm Lucy, and this week on Footnoting History, I'll be examining Victorian novels, cutting-edge 19th-century science, and surprisingly timeless worries about the potential of human endeavor to generate unforeseen consequences. With characteristic style and ruthlessness, George Bernard Shaw gave the following assessment of Victorian culture. In the middle of the 19th century, naturalists and physicists assured the world in the name of science that salvation and damnation are all nonsense, and that predestination is the central truth of religion, inasmuch as human beings are produced by their environment, their sins and good deeds being only a series of chemical and mechanical reactions over which they have no control. Such figments as mind, choice, purpose, conscience, will, and so forth are, they taught, mere illusions, produced because they are useful in the continual struggle of the human machine to maintain its environment in a favorable condition. While historians have generally assessed mid-to-late Victorian attitudes with more nuance and less poetry, the view that science raised new ideas and new anxieties is one with which scholars have largely concurred. The Victorian relationship of science to the supernatural was an uncertain one. New technologies could be used to prove the impossibility of old beliefs, but also to expand the scope of what was possible. Ruskin famously tried to reconcile science and spiritualism, because of course he did. Even more famously, Arthur Conan Doyle, that ophthalmologist-turned-author, was also a devotee of spiritualism who tirelessly promoted it to anyone who would listen. This could be a way of reaffirming belief in the supernatural, or indeed of providing evidence of things unseen. The narrator of a 1901 short story proclaims that she believes, quote, in very little that I could not see unless indeed it was scientifically proven, unquote. This is itself an interesting declaration to me, as it acknowledges that science was increasingly positing proofs for the unseen, from bacteria to mental illness to sexual orientation. While many scientific discoveries and debates were cause for anxiety as well as excitement, the legitimacy of scientific inquiry itself in the mid-Victorian period was secure. One author lamented, This talk of the supernatural which is everywhere in the air at present has seemed to me to be only a sign of the times, the outcome of overwrought nerves, or at best, a morbid hankering for untried experiences. Unquote. What to do for overwrought nerves? Treat them with tonic. From cheap elixirs to the respectable and even aspirational vin mariani, a compound created by a French chemist in 1863, produced by compounding Bordeaux wine and cocaine, tonics were universally popular. Vamayani was a worldwide sensation, and indeed endorsed by Queen Victoria herself, as well as the science fiction author Jules Verne. But before you scoff at our Victorian predecessors, recall that in the late 19th century, the line between cutting-edge science and absurd charlatanism was often less than clear. The 21st century, of course, with its numerous crowdsourced declarations on medical science, has perhaps very little ground to stand on in terms of scoffing. 
Less than a century before, as I've discussed in a previous episode on geology and geologists, the science curriculum was expanding to accommodate new disciplines. New facts about old species and new species themselves were being discovered and publicized at a rapid rate. As the expansion of the microscope to provide after-dinner entertainments in middle-class homes illustrates, general interest in and exposure to scientific research and scientific cultures was arguably more formative than today. And looking at science and scientists in fiction can help us track changing attitudes and shifting anxieties. Institutions, individuals, and incongruous compounds are all regular players in Victorian novels. As science debated the scope of knowledge, legitimate ways of deriving it, and new ways of debating it, indeed, novelists confronted questions about the place of such science in society. In the mid-Victorian period, generally speaking, while science might be morally ambiguous, it was also largely recognizable. In Jane Eyre, for instance, a shared interest in botany and the natural world is one of the things that brings Jane and Mr. Rochester together, a fact too often neglected in adaptations, in my opinion. But anyway, Jane also reads Mr. Rochester's character using phrenology, long since debunked as a pseudoscience of reading moral qualities in facial structure, but in context an ominous bit of foreshadowing. Moreover, Jane and Rochester's mysterious sympathies, which read to modern audiences as high gothic romance, and they are, are framed by the characters themselves as an example of an as yet little understood science. Rochester's fancy that he might take to bleeding inwardly if he were separated from Jane, responsible for centuries of readers swooning, is based on a scientific experiment, which he cites like the well-educated man he is. In The Woman in White, Wilkie Collins's spooky, possibly ghost-involving social problem novel from 1859, an interest in chemistry is the rather chic but also potentially sinister attribute of the cosmopolitan Count Fosca. Institutions of medical care, moreover, are almost thoroughly sinister. One of Collins' stated goals in publishing the novel was to advocate for the reform of mental asylums so that the powerful and wealthy would be less capable of simply confining inconvenient relatives, often female, as accusations of insanity were heavily gendered. A detailed examination of Victorian views on the unique fragility of women's minds and bodies would be a tangent here, but they were raised in connection with everything from railway travel to politics to public space. Collins' representations of science, in other words, were targeted towards contemporary social realities. From the 1880s onwards, such direct links to contemporary science became less common than discussions of near-future possibilities, in novels set in the contemporary world but featuring futuristic science, examining the hopes and terrors of what-if. An illustration of this transition of attitudes may be found in two very different passages from the Sherlock Holmes canon. In The Naval Treaty, an optimistic story that also sees Holmes praising the expansion of Victorian public education, the detective makes an enthusiastic claim for the power of natural science to illustrate the order and goodness of the universe. Our highest assurance of the goodness of providence, says Holmes, seems to me to rest in the flowers. It is only goodness which gives extras, and so I say again that we have much to hope from the flowers. Later on, however, he's much less certain. What is the meaning of it? He asks. What object is served by this circle of misery and violence and fear? It must tend to some end, or else our universe is ruled by chance, which is unthinkable. But what end? 
There is the great standing perennial problem to which human reason is as far from an answer as ever. The great standing perennial problem of human possibility was engaged with by many of the late Victorian period's novelists. Doyle himself wrote that those seeking to rise above human nature would inevitably fall below it. A similar moral is drawn by Robert Louis Stevenson's famous Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The investigators of the mysterious Jekyll and Hyde are unequivocally respectable, but not necessarily upright. The dry little lawyer, Mr. Utterson, is habitually disengaged, a disengagement presented as morally ambiguous in the extreme. His interlocutor, Mr. Enfield, drawls that he dislikes asking questions because it partakes too much of the Day of Judgment. He insists, however, that the infamous Mr. Hyde must be deformed somewhere. He gives, says Enfield, a strong feeling of deformity, although I couldn't specify the point. Mr. Utterson, with commendable scientific logic, presents three possible explanations for Enfield's antipathy. Option one, Mr. Hyde is secretly troglodytic, an evolutionary misstep of sorts. Option two, Enfield's dislike is irrational, merely a matter of a lack of sympathy. Option three, Mr. Hyde has a foul soul, which communicates itself physically. It's not overemphasizing the fact to say that the story is obsessed with the question of how much is knowable and how and if the soul is connected to the body. Does the respectable Dr. Jekyll lose control of his experiments because his compounds are impure, as he suspects? Or does the change lie elsewhere? At the end, he asserts that the drug had no discriminating action. It was neither diabolical nor divine. But at the same time, the narrative warns the readers against certainty. H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man engages similar themes. Wells' treatment may seem more heavy-handed, but it can be read as containing similar ambiguities. The Invisible Man is not known by name at first, but only as an experimental scientist. The mysterious stranger is contrasted with the vivid material detail and local color of his surroundings. His collection of bottles is the envy of the chemist. His most conspicuous victims are the vicar and the doctor, figures of authority. His ally is an alcoholic tramp. What is his character? We aren't sure. We know him to be frustrated. Because of his own failing? Because of someone else's? The reader is held in suspense. The Invisible Man interprets people's hostility to him as primitive superstition. But the newspapers, too, those heralds of modernity, talk about spirits, talk of the unseen. Modern spiritualism and ancient folk belief are both referenced as possible explanations, and both eventually dismissed. Even the opposition between superstition and science is gradually deconstructed. When the invisible man eventually explains himself, he insists it's no devilry, but a process sane and intelligible enough. His initially skeptical audience, in turn, then argues to himself, is there such a thing as an invisible animal? In the sea, yes, thousands, millions. All the readers learn of the mysterious potion that transforms the invisible man is that it contains strychnine, which is described both as a grand tonic and the Paleolithic in a bottle. This chemically certain substance, then, is used to redraw the boundaries of the possible in moral as well as scientific terms. The last novel I'd like to discuss may seem an unlikely source for science, but we can't talk about late Victorian science without talking about sex. And to talk about sex and sexuality, we're going to talk about vampires.
From the outset in Dracula, we are among lands, people, and customs defined by the observer as strange. At the same time, we're allowed as readers to critique Jonathan Harker's two pragmatic responses, to enter into the imagination of the Romanian peasants, to evaluate the realities of the mysterious Count and his castle from their perspective as well. The mannered, respectable, well-ordered lives, well-ordered emotionally as otherwise, of Mina and Lucy, contrasts starkly with the experiences of the naive Mr. Harker. We have a composite picture of the world through the perspectives of these multiple protagonists. We also see, a narrative at first tenuously connected, the scientific and personal passions of Dr. Seward, a research on the cutting edge of science, investigating madness at the core of human nature. What could be a legitimate subject of scientific study? For Dr. Seward, it included experiments on mental patients. For Dr. Van Helsing, also a scientist, it included using the Eucharist with scientific precision, the act that clues in his modern, skeptical English audience to the fact that vampires are serious business. For Henry Spencer Ashby, writing in 1877, science included a bibliography of pornographic works. Ashby's project was, as he conceived and articulated it, a strictly scientific one, an attempt to understand forms of human desire and human activity better by creating a scientific catalogue. Its reception and use were, shall we say, less than scientific. But it is worth noting that Ashby's project, and how he chose to articulate his thoughts about it, were unmistakably shaped by the historical perceptions of his particular moment. Ashby's catalogue might not have been a topic suitable for polite conversation, but as he and at least some of his audiences understood it, it absolutely was a legitimate topic for scientific investigation. And the question of what made a legitimate topic for scientific examination, as we have seen, was an open one. Arguably, the question of most concern to late Victorian scientists was that of what exactly lay at the core of human nature, and the capabilities of science alone to answer this question became a source of concern in turn. To state the obvious, the latter decades of the 19th century in England saw rapid social transformations in gender roles. Both the laws and the norms governing behaviour were changing. And thanks to Havelock Ellis and others, sexuality was gradually transformed into an identity, understood as influencing and influenced by the totality of individual experience. This is particularly visible in the writings of social reformer John Addington Simmons, who corresponded with the scientist Ellis, and who was an advocate of what he called male love, or Greek love, in order to avoid calling it sodomy. Sodomy was up for debate by leading 19th century social philosophers, in its legal, moral, and biological senses, picking up on a vigorous debate that had been carried on from the late 18th century onwards by thinkers such as William Blackstone and Jeremy Bentham, among others. But it was not until the 1890s that the terms homosexuality and heterosexuality were coined. Partly in response to the social criticism novels of the earlier part of the century, women's opportunities in public life were expanding. And thanks to science, understandings of human nature, including how we experience attraction, were expanding and changing too. As Arthur Conan Doyle commented, this could be frightening and liberating in almost equal proportion. The threat of transgressing gender categories and the dangerous, ineradicable desire to do so can be read, indeed, as the central themes of Stoker's Dracula. 
The relationships of Victorian literature to cultural debates about science and its limitations were evolving and complex. In mid-Victorian novels, social and scientific debates could be both embodied and stabilised in fiction. Science itself, meanwhile, was a topic of relatively innocuous fascination. As the possibilities of science expanded in the second half of the century, so too did anxieties about it. This was particularly true when it came to invisible subjects of investigation, like human nature. We see this perhaps most explicitly in The Invisible Man, who sees his strange project as a natural extension of the work that had rendered the microscopic organisms of the universe visible to the human eye. Works like Dracula, or The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, could, intentionally or not, contribute to essentializing female sexuality and pathologizing homosexuality. Works of protest, like works of classification, could often produce unexpected connections, as we have seen in Ashby's scientific catalogue of porn. The Victorians lived in a world that was becoming visible in different ways, intelligible in new ways, and also frightening in new ways. The science and scientists of fiction, whether shady, noble, or morally ambiguous, were sources of fascination, through whom and through which the implications of new ideas could be explored. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>